Jesus, we thank you for bringing us here. Lord, we thank you for this season and all that it represents. God, uh, you coming to the earth to save us from ourselves, to save from save us from the consequences of sin, to give us eternal life. Lord, and I just pray that in this season we would be so focused on uh, the greatest gift that's ever been given to us. We wouldn't get so overwhelmed with all the little things and decorations and getting other people presents and all that stuff. Um, nothing wrong with that, Lord, but, but uh, we just desire that you would give us hearts that are focused on the right thing, that are focused on you. Um, Christmas. It's all about Christ. So Jesus, we pray that you would speak to us through uh, this message and the upcoming messages that uh, you would you would bring conviction and encouragement, that we would respond to your word in a way that brings you honor. Uh, Lord, so we just ask that you bless this time. Fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Advent. Advent begins today. It's the first four Sundays before Christmas, okay? So it depends. It'll be anywhere from the end of uh, November to actually December 3rd. When you look at a year, that's the last day that Advent would start uh, when you look at history. So today, Advent starts. And Advent, the Greek word is parousia, okay? Uh, in, in the Latin, it's Adventus, and it literally means coming. That's what Advent is all about. Now, originally, we see back in uh, about the 4th, 5th century, uh, the celebration was different. It, it was more like Lent. Basically, what would happen was they had a designated day where a bunch of new believers would get baptized. And those new believers would be in a place of repentance and confession for 40 days leading up to their baptism. So it was more like Lent than what we think of as Advent today. Then somewhere around the 6th century, it got more focused on Christmas. Before, originally, it wasn't connected to Christmas. Uh, 6th century, it started to get connected to Christmas. And that word Adventus or Perusia, uh, it literally means coming. What we're doing is celebrating the Lord's first and second coming. That's what it's all about. We look back at the Lord's first coming and look forward to the Lord's second coming. But we do it in backwards order, okay? So we'll look at the Lord's second coming first for the next two weeks. Then we'll look at the Lord's first coming, more of the traditional Christmas message that you're probably familiar with. Now, i got to warn you, you're not going to see Advent in the Bible, okay? Um, you'll see parousia on that word for coming uh, in the Greek speaking of the Lord's second coming, but but you're not going to see Advent or the celebration in the Bible. Uh, it's a tradition thing, but as we dive into the text, we're going to focus on what the Bible says concerning the Lord's first and second coming. So we're not just teaching a tradition, we're celebrating a t- tradition, but we're teaching the Word of God, which is, I think, extremely important. Now, just a little personal stuff. So I began preparing like two topical messages uh, about the second coming of Christ. And literally from Genesis to Revelation, second coming is everywhere. It's literally everywhere. There's so much. We're going to scratch the surface in the next uh, couple weeks. But as I was kind of preparing this topical message, I was like, man, this is really all over the place. Why don't I just take one book and go that focuses on the second coming and teach that. And there's a few books that focus on the second coming of Christ. You got first and second Thessalonians. You also have Zechariah in the Old Testament. But I think um, one of my favorites that focuses on the second coming is Revelation. So yes, we will be teaching Revelation in two weeks. Now you might say, Revelation's 22 chapters. How are we going to teach Revelation in two weeks? It's going to happen supernaturally it will happen uh now obviously we won't do verse by verse but i will do chapter by chapter i'll talk about almost all the chapters and kind of summarize for you these are the basic events uh surrounding the lord's second coming that's really what revelation is all about the lord's second coming and all the events that surround the lord's second coming now revelation the word in the Greek is apocalypsis. Apocalypsis is the word. And it truly means unveiling. 
This is the point. The Lord is showing His bride who He truly is and what the events are that are surrounded by Him coming back for His bride. Yes, the second coming is an event, but it's also Jesus revealing His true nature to His bride. We're going to see Jesus like we've never seen Him before in the book of Revelation. So the event is important. The actual second coming of Christ, which we'll talk about. The fact that the Lord is revealing something to us about Himself is also very important. But what I believe is just as important is how we're supposed to respond in light of our knowledge of the second coming. Let me show you. The Bible tells us exactly this, how to respond through Paul in Titus chapter 2. In Titus chapter 2. Right after 2 Timothy, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Okay, look at what he says here. Looking for the blessed hope, meaning looking for the second coming of Christ. This is how we're called to respond in the present age. To live soberly, righteously, and godly. To deny worldly lusts and the things of the world. Bottom line, we're called to be looking for the blessed hope. And that's the title of this series. Next two teachings, looking for the blessed hope. Part one and part two. Okay, what does this actually mean? Looking for the blessed hope. We got to get back to the original language it was written in, and that was Greek, right? The word blessed in the Greek, it actually means happy or joy-filled, okay? Joyful. And the word hope in the Bible literally means a confident expectation. Looking for the blessed hope means I'm looking, I'm anticipating, I'm eagerly awaiting with joy the confident expectation that Jesus is coming back. Okay, This is so important even when you look at the words that Paul uses here. The second coming is not something we're supposed to be scared of. It's not something that's supposed to inspire fear in us. Rather, it's supposed to inspire joy. That's what he says. The looking for the blessed hope, the joy-filled, confident expectation that Jesus is coming back. It's something we should be excited about. If we're truly in right relationship with the Lord, his second coming should not scare us at all. It should be something that we look forward to, that we embrace. And that's what the Bible speaks of when referring to the second coming. That's how we ought to respond. If you don't have joy looking for a second coming, then there's a problem. There's a problem. And this is a serious problem. That might mean, likely, that you're not in a right relationship with the Lord, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But as we look at the second coming, we're supposed to look forward to the second coming, looking for the blessed hope. Now, you'll be uh, reminded of some things that we've talked about in the last couple months. A lot of stuff we talk about uh, will connect to the Matthew 24 teachings where Jesus talks about the second coming. Uh, also, when we talk about the Levitical feast, I'll mention some of those same things. Uh, but this time we're going through Revelation. So there will be some parallel stuff, but I think it'll be good reinforcement. Now, if you remember in Matthew chapter 24, who was that written to? What was the message? Who was it for? Anyone remember it's for the Jew, right? He says, those in Judea flee. He's speaking specifically to a Jewish audience. In fact, Matthew's gospel was written to Jewish believers. That was the primary purpose of it. That's why he uses so much Old Testament prophecy. He wants to show the Jew that Jesus is the Messiah that the Bible's been talking about forever. Now, Revelation is specifically to the church. You could call it his love letter to the church. When you look at Revelation... And you think love letter? Like what? How could you say that that's a love letter? Because Jesus is showing us not what's going to happen to us, but what he is going to protect us from. What he's going to allow us to escape from. We'll talk about that as we get into the rapture. But first, let's look at Revelation chapter 1. 
Revelation chapter 1. Now, conveniently, the Lord gave us an outline of the entire book in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Look what it says. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Write the things which you have seen, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ, specifically Revelation chapters, say 1, verse 9 to 16. John actually sees Jesus Christ. Okay, I'll talk about this in more detail. He says the things which are, he's talking about the present church ages. That's Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Okay, and then that last section, he says, and the things which shall will take place after this. That's Revelation chapter 4 to 22. Those are future events. We'll talk about in more detail. First, he says, write the things which you have seen, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, we get some context. John was on the island of Patmos when the Lord revealed himself to John. And tradition tells us, history tells us that John was burned alive in oil. They tried to kill him, but he didn't die. They didn't know what was what they were supposed to do with him. So they exiled him to Patmos in hopes he would die over there. But he didn't. And instead, he received the revelation of Jesus Christ. The point? The Lord revealed himself to John in the midst of his suffering. When he was probably going through the worst suffering that any of us have gone through, I don't know, but think about it, being burned alive in oil. Like, I can't even imagine how painful that would be. After that, then exiled to Patmos to die, that's when the Lord revealed himself to John. And so often, that's when the Lord reveals himself to us. Maybe you're not burned alive in oil or exiled to an island to die. But the point is, when we go through suffering, that's often when the Lord shows us the most about himself. That was the case for John. He had to go through that suffering in order to see the Lord for who he really is. Now, on the island of Patmos, Jesus is going to come and visit John. And John describes his appearance. He's trying to put human words to a divine being. Okay, and look at how he describes them. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a white garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. we got to remember again, John's trying to put human words on it. He's seeing something that's almost indescribable. He says his hair was white as wool, his eyes like fire. He says his countenance was like the sun. Think about that. Imagine looking at someone, and their face was as bright as the sun. What would that do? It would blind you, okay? You could only look for so long. That's what he's describing. Like, this is an an unspeakable description, the appearance of Christ. And it was so powerful, it says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, that John fell at the feet of Jesus on his face as if he was dead. He thought he was going to die just by looking at Jesus. I can only imagine what the appearance of Christ looks like. John gives us this description, but imagine that. We don't fall on our faces when we read that description, but if you saw it, guaranteed you would fall on our faces as if we were dead. This is what Jesus is referring to. Write the things which you have seen. Jesus, actually Jesus, in his glorified state, encountering John. Next, Revelation chapter 1 verse 19, it says, write the things which are. The things which are, again, Revelation chapter 2 to 3. We see seven churches that the Lord communicates to. And he communicates different things to each of these churches. Now, it's believed that these seven churches represent the whole church age. Why? Because seven throughout the Bible is the number of completion. And there was a heck of a lot more than seven churches that existed at this time. Jesus picked seven churches strategically to give us a summary of the church age in its entirety. Now, many people believe 
that each of these churches represents a specific church age, okay? A specific church age from the very first church age, the apostolic church, to the last church age, which is the lukewarm church. Now, these church ages, we see that they're historical. They were actually churches that existed. They're prophetic, meaning speaking of future church ages that would happen. And they're also practical, meaning we can read about these churches and you'll see some of them are like, bam, pierces the heart. Uh, maybe we can relate to these churches in different seasons of our life. What do I mean? Maybe you left your first love. Maybe you're going through a season of persecution. Uh, maybe you have a name that you're alive, but you died. There's something dead in you. Maybe, maybe your walk with the Lord is just lukewarm. So these church ages, what's spoken to the churches, is very practical as well. Now, it's interesting, speaking of the prophetic side of this. Now, let me preface this by saying, we can't know this for sure. Why? Because the Bible doesn't give us dates about this. But it's, it's almost eerie, extremely interesting when you study the church as a whole, the different seasons that the church went through in the last 2,000 years, they line up very close to the churches and the, um, the situations that they were going through that Jesus speaks of in Revelation chapter 2, verse 3. So, Sorry, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So let's look at this, and I'm going to briefly give this to you. He talks to the church of Ephesus. They left their first love. They went back to the legalism thing. They're all about works. They left the, the love of Christ. And we see that in history between 33 AD and about 99 AD, referred to the apostolic church, the first church when all the apostles were still alive before they were killed. Then after that, you have the church of Smyrna. That's the persecuted church. And when you look at history from between 100 AD and about 312 AD, there was mass Mass persecution uh, across the world, uh, the known world where believers lived. Um, some estimate about five to six million Christians were killed during that time. And they didn't have seven billion people on the world in the world like they do now. Then after that, you have the church of Thyatira, which is referred to as, sorry, the church of Pergamos and then Thyatira. The church of Pergamos is called the Compromising Church. That's what it's referred to in the Bible. And we see from about 312 A.D. to about 600 A.D., the church is in compromise. Why? What event took, took place? Well, Constantine got saved, Caesar of Rome, and he made it mandatory that everybody be a Christian. It doesn't work, okay? You can't make someone love Jesus. It just doesn't work. So what's going to happen? Obviously, you got a bunch of people that say they love Jesus, but they're in compromise. Why? Because they don't want people to know that they don't love Jesus because they might die or they might get killed or imprisoned for not being in a relationship with the Lord. So you got a bunch of insincere believers. We see that between 312 and 600 AD. After that, as I mentioned, the church of Thyatira, uh, referred to as the corrupt church, uh, and this really connects to the papal age, meaning uh, the age of the pope, uh, when the pope was so prominent, they had more authority than the king, and we see that time period between 600 and 1500 uh, A.D., and during the papal age, you had mad corruption going on in the Catholic church. The popes were like gods really they were like gods they could do anything they wanted there was a bunch of sexual immorality happening in the vatican there were so many corrupt things that were were going on in the church so that ushered in the next church age which is referred to as the church of philadelphia sorry church of sardis i keep skipping churches church of sardis it's referred to as the dead church and many suggest that this is uh, around 1500 to 1800. Uh, a lot of people tie it back to the Reformed movement because during that corrupt period with the popes and everything that was going on, you had Martin Luther stand up for the word of God and what was right and, and basically rebuke uh, the Catholic Church and everything that they were doing wrong during that time period. And it started off as a really good thing. People got back in the word of God. It wasn't just the leaders that could interpret scripture. Everybody needs a Bible. And that started off really good the church of sardis is referred to as the dead church meaning it started off great and there's still a remnant it says that's that's really alive and and thriving but what started off as a name that was alive eventually died out after that you have the church of philadelphia which is the faithful church referred to as the faithful church 
Now, of these seven churches, Jesus has rebukes for all but two of them. All but two of them. The persecuted church, Smyrna, and the faithful church, the church of Philadelphia. He has nothing bad to say about them. And when you look between like the 18, 1900s, um, between 18 and 1900, uh, you, you see a vast amount of missionaries across the world sharing the gospel, going all different places from Africa, South America, you name it. So this is believed to be connected to the church of Philadelphia. And lastly, you have the lukewarm church. And many suggest that that's the church age that we're in now. And when you look at our culture, it's not really hard to believe um, the lukewarmness in Christianity. Um, there's a, a lot of uh, professing Christians. In fact, there's about two and a half billion people that profess to be Christians. But if you looked at their life, I think you'd have a hard time realizing that they were Christians. So you see a lot of people saying, yeah, I know Jesus. I love Jesus. I believe, but their life would say something different. The faith that they have is not a faith that the Bible actually teaches. So we see this lukewarmness in the age that we're in now. Now, let me say this. With these ages, you see remnants of each category, right? We see remnants of the legalism thing and people leaving their first love and remnants of the persecuted church, China, the Middle East. You see remnants of the missionary church, right? The church of Philadelphia, the faithful church, the Sardis church, all these different things. You still see those types of churches here today, but primarily when you look at the church as a whole across the world, uh, I think there's a good argument that we are in that lukewarm church age. Now, Remember what I said, we can't put exact dates on these things and say, this happened then, and this happened then, and this happened then. I'm, I'm giving you this information because it's something that's highly studied and communicated, uh, especially from Calvary Chapel pulpits, but others as well. Um, but the point is, I think even more than being able to pinpoint in history these times uh, that that happened, I think uh, more than that, the, the main thing that we want to pull from this is that these chapters, Revelation chapter 2 to 3, represents the church age in its entirety. And I'll explain why I believe this. Now, one thing Jesus says to each and every one of these churches, okay, from Revelation 2 to 3, he says, he who overcomes shall receive whatever, something. He who overcomes, he who overcomes, he who overcomes, uh, whether it's a white stone, eternal life, the tree of life, he has a bunch of different rewards. All of these things connect to eternal life. So he who overcomes, let's just make it synonymous, gets eternal life. How do we overcome? The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 5, in 1 John chapter 5, <clears throat> First John chapter five should just be over a couple pages. Uh, verse four, it says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the son of God who overcomes the world. Believers in Christ. People that are truly following Christ. So he says to all these churches, hey, those of you that are legit, those of you that really believe in me, that have a faith that overcome, you will not have to face the wrath to come, the destruction to come, specifically the tribulation. Now we'll also see in Revelation chapter 4, and we'll get into it in a little more detail, this description of these 24 elders that sit on 24 thrones. Now, people have different opinions about this. Uh, majority would say that, yes, there's some type of believers. Uh, some will say it represents the uh, saints of old, uh, 12 tribes of Israel and the, and the 12 apostles representing the church. Uh, I personally believe that it's a representation of the church. It's a representation of those that are believers, that have faith in Christ, that are taken up at the rapture, which we'll talk into in more detail. But the reason I'm bringing it up right now is because when you look at the descriptions of the 24 elders on 24 thrones and you look at Revelation chapter 2 and 3, there's a bunch of the same descriptions. He talks about the crowns on their head. We see that in the church. We see that with the 24 elders. He talks about them being clothed with white garments. We see that in the church. We see that with the elders. We also see these thrones that they sit on. We see that in the church and we see it in the elders. You'd have to read Revelation 2 to 3 to be able to put that together but the description of the 24 elders on 24 thrones 
is synonymous with some of the things that are said specifically about the church in Revelation chapter 2 to 3. Now, if you get it to Revelation chapter 4, this is important. Look how it starts. I want to remind you, Revelation chapter 1 verse 19, write the things which you have seen, the, the image of Christ, okay? The things which are the church the present churches and the church age and the things which will take place after this. Okay, that's a Greek expression referred to as metatauta after these things. Look how Revelation chapter four, verse one starts after these things. Okay, It's the same exact phraseology that's used in Revelation chapter 119, meaning this is what's going to happen in the future after the church is gone. So Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we're going to see a picture of the rapture, which we'll discuss in more detail, and the picture of the church in heaven, okay? And then after that, we'll see the tribulation from Revelation chapter 6 to Revelation chapter 19. And you can see some of this stuff up there just to be able to take notes. Uh, it's, it's, it, when, when you have the big picture, it's, it's a lot easier to understand the details and what's being communicated. Now, there are many views of the rapture, okay? Let's point to it first. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is where one of the primary, not the only ones, but one of the primary verses people use to talk about the rapture. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Not the trumpet of an angel, the trumpet of God. That's important. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So at the rapture, those who are dead in Christ, the Lord is going to give them their glorified bodies. Okay, if we're alive at the rapture, we don't get have to face death. We just go and be with the Lord. That's the event that the Bible is talking about, the rapture. Jesus comes in the air to gather his bride, those that are dead in Christ, will already be with them in spirit, but they'll get their glorified bodies. Talk about that a little more as well. But I want to do you the favor of giving you some other views that are out there. Because I think it's important, especially when you study eschatology, uh, the study of end times, um, that you don't just get set on what anybody tells you. Look into this stuff on your own. Because there are many views out there uh, of the whole book of Revelation and specifically with the rapture. So I'm going to share with you some of these views and explain to you why I don't have those views, okay? One of the views, uh, it's referred to as the preterist view, uh, and they believe that God's promises concerning end times are figurative and not literal. Now you have full preterists, which believe that all the things spoken of concerning prophecy and the second coming had already happened. And what they'll say is that uh, when, when Rome was judged, and there was a sign in the sky and all these different things, that that was the second coming. But basically what they'll do is they'll, they'll, they'll take scripture and over-spiritualize it. They'll say, well, this must be then. And they try to fit the pieces together, but it doesn't really line up exactly what Jesus said. Because Jesus said this, no one will have to tell you when I come back. He says, if somebody has to convince you that the second coming happened, they are lying. Okay, they're lying. He says, every eye will see him. It won't be a question. We'll all know. We'll all know at the same time. Somebody shouldn't have to convince you that a historical event took place and that was second coming. Jesus, that, that completely contradicts the words that Jesus said. And Jesus said that he's going to come back. He's going to come back physically. Now, with the preterist view... The full preterists believe that, that all these things have already been fulfilled. Partial preterists, they'll believe that some of these things uh, have been fulfilled. Uh, but the problem I have with it is you can't take the Lord's word for it. You have to over-spiritualize the things that he said. Uh, when he said he was going to rise from the dead, it wasn't just a spiritual thing. He actually physically rose from the dead. I think when he comes back and he says, I'm going to stand on the Mount of Olives, I think he's actually physically going to do it. I don't think he's over-spiritualizing that and like we're uncertain about it. He says we'll be certain about it. Now, there are many people that I respect that have this view, specifically um, uh, Reformed theologians. I just don't agree with this specific um, view of, of, of Revelation and specifically the rapture. Now, another popular view is the mid-tribulation rapture. They get this from Daniel chapter 7, uh, verse 25. We'll see, and we'll talk about it next week. 
um, the, the tribulation will be seven years, okay? It's separated by uh, three and a half year increments, okay? You have a seven year tribulation. The last half of it is called the great tribulation. Talk about this next week. But in Daniel chapter seven, verse 25, it says the, the saints will be persecuted for three and a half years. What saints is he referring to? Um, well, the mid-trib people believe he's referring to the church. Uh, I believe he's referring to his tribulation, referring to tribulation saints. Why? Because the church is not appointed to wrath. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. I don't think the church will be in any part of the tribulation. That's my personal point of view. You also have people that believe in something called the pre-wrath rapture, meaning will be in part of the tribulation like in the beginning of Revelation 6, up to the sixth seal, but then we'll be raptured before the wrath of the Lamb. Okay? I don't believe this because the tribulation, when you look at it, it's all God's wrath. God's, God's wrath and anger is mentioned so many times throughout the book of Revelation, specifically connecting to Revelation 6 to 19, where we discuss the tribulation. You also have a view referred to as uh, the post-tribulation rapture, meaning Jesus will come for his bride at the end of the tribulation. And they get this from Matthew chapter 24, uh, where Jesus, speaking to a Jewish audience, he says uh, that he's going to come at the end and gather his elect. Who are the elect? He's speaking to Jews. The elect are Jews. The elect isn't the church. Pre-tribulation rapture is what I personally believe. You'll find many Calvary Chapel pastors that believe the same thing. And I don't believe it because I was taught it. I believe it because I've studied this a lot. Okay, and I'm going to tell you why I believe that the pre-tribulation rapture is how it's going to go down. First of all, if you would with me, if you look in Luke chapter 21. Now, Luke chapter 21 referred to as the Olivet Discourse. This is Jesus speaking of the end times. Um, a lot, a lot of it's the very, the, the same as, uh, Matthew chapter 24. Okay. Just Luke's account of it. And Luke chapter 21, after Jesus is talking about the end times and the tribulation and his second coming, look at what he says at the very end of this. And Luke chapter 21, verse 34. He says, but take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life. He's telling them how to respond in light of his second coming, okay? And that day come on you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. He says, disciples, listen up. You need to pray that you're worthy to escape these things. Meaning there are going to be people that escape the tribulation. That's what he was talking about in Luke chapter 21. So if there's people that are going to escape the tribulation, how do they escape? He says, if you're worthy. How are we declared worthy? Not because of what we do, not because of our righteous acts or because of our works. We're declared worthy because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. He's the one that declares us worthy. So the worthy people that escape the tribulation are the believers. You know what he didn't say? He didn't say pray that you die before the tribulation happens. Okay, because some will say, oh, well, the worthy people are those that died before the tribulation. He would have said that. Pray that you're taken out before the tribulation happens. No, he says, pray that you're worthy to escape these things. Who's worthy? Only his bride. Only those that believe in him and not because of what we do, but because of who he is. Also, when you look at Revelation chapters two to three, the word church, uh, the Greek is ecclesia. Okay, the Greek word for church is ecclesia. It's mentioned 19 times from Revelation chapter two to three. Guess what? It's not mentioned again to the very end of the book from Revelation chapter six to Revelation chapter 19. The church isn't discussed. It's not talked about anymore. The next time we see the church is in Revelation chapter 19 and the church, the Lord's bride, is in heaven with Christ. If Jesus is so focused on talking so much about the church in the beginning, if the church is there during the tribulation, then why isn't Jesus talking about the church? The word's never used. It's never used. The word ecclesia, the word for church. Why? Because I don't believe the church is going to be there. The church is going to be with the Lord in heaven. Now, you will see this, and this can cause some confusion. You will see saints mentioned uh, several times from Revelation 6 to 19. Now, 
We can't look at saints and say, oh, those are, that's the church. We can look at saints and say, those are believers, okay? We can say saints are believers, but we see saints in the Old Testament, we see saints in the New Testament, and we're going to see saints during the tribulation. All it means is that they believe in Christ. He doesn't refer to them as the church. He doesn't refer to them as the bride. The bride will already have been taken up. Now, Revelation chapter 4 Verse 1, look what it says. After these things, future events, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me. Okay, sound of a trumpet saying, come up here. So John was caught up and I will show you things which must take place after this. This is believed to be a picture of the rapture. At the sound of a trumpet, John is caught up as a picture of the church. We don't see the church anymore after this event until the end of the tribulation. So the rapture, again is when Jesus comes. Now, let me say this. Um, when you look at the second coming uh, and you study the whole book of the, the whole Bible, okay, from Genesis to Revelation, um, it gets confusing. It, you would almost say there's things that contradict each other if you're not looking at it with the right perspective. Why? Because it'll say that the Lord's going to come in the air. It also says he's going to come on the ground. It says he's going to come to get his bride. It says he's going to come with his bride. So you see all these little things and, and how do we make sense of it? Because technically when you look at the second coming, there are two second comings. I guess you could say three. I don't know. Um, <laughs> there really are. So he's going to come in the air for his bride. At the end of the tribulation, he's going to come on the earth with his bride. It says he's going to come with thousands of his saints. We see that in Zechariah chapter 14 and also Jude, which we studied last week now when he comes at the rapture he's going to gather his bride those that are left here he's going to give those who died or dead in christ their glorified bodies okay one of the other main reasons why i believe the church will be raptured before the tribulation is as i mentioned before we're we're not appointed to wrath and i'll show you some verses backing that up and especially with the pre-wrath view, they'll say, well, the whole tribulation isn't God's wrath. It's Jesus that opens the seals and pours the wrath out on the earth. It's not just the Antichrist coming to the scene. Jesus has to act first. He starts opening that first of seven seals. That's what begins the tribulation. As I mentioned before, you see the wrath of God mentioned all through Revelation. The whole tribulation is the wrath of God. It's not just part of it. It's the whole thing. This should be encouraging. In 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 1, Paul, speaking of end times events, he tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, when he comes, speaking of when the Lord comes back, in that day, he's talking about the day of the Lord after, at the end of the tribulation, to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among those Sorry. Yeah, I was in second. It still connects to the second coming, but not the one I was looking for. First uh, Thessalonians 1.10. And to wait for his son, the Lord, when he comes back from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Not a wrath, not some trial, the wrath. He says, Jesus delivers us. Who's he talking to? The church of Thessalonica, representing the church. Jesus is going to deliver us from the wrath to come. We also see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verse 8, that the church isn't appointed to wrath. We will escape the wrath of God. God will discipline his children, but he doesn't pour out his wrath on his children. Now, that doesn't mean that in this life we won't face trials. Jesus promises it. We'll have difficulty, absolutely. But when we look at the tribulation, the Lord, he's going to allow us to escape from it. And this isn't just something that we see in Revelation and 1 Thessalonians. This is something that we see throughout the Bible, even in the Old Testament from the very beginning. In Revel, uh, sorry, Genesis chapter 5, we see Enoch, right? He walked with God, then he was no more, for the Lord took him up. When did he take him up? 
just before the flood, which was tribulation over the whole earth. When you look at Sodom and Gomorrah, there was one guy left in there, or there was one guy that was in there that God uh, protected, that God allowed to escape. Who was that? Lot. God sent the angels to save Lot before he poured out the fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. Just before Jericho was destroyed, who did God save? Rahab. So you see this picture throughout the Bible of the Lord delivering believers before this catastrophic event that wipes out everyone in the area. We see a picture of the pre-tribulation rapture throughout the entire Bible. Now, as I mentioned... What happens if you die before the rapture? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We will be with the Lord. There's not soul sleep. That's not biblical. Uh, we will be with the Lord. Then we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the end of it, uh, the, the Paul talks about these glorified spiritual bodies that will gain at an event, a moment in time, at the twinkling of an eye. Okay, It's an event that happens across the world in a moment. The rapture happens. Glorified bodies are given. When will this happen? In Romans chapter 11... Verse 25, there's a reference to the fullness of the Gentiles in connection to the Jews and the redemption of the Jews. Uh, but the belief is that when the last Gentile gets saved, that's when the rapture is going to happen. Okay, You've heard me say this before, but you might be the one sharing the gospel with that last person and bam. Doesn't that like make you want to share the gospel with like the Lord's just waiting for that final number. When you share the gospel with that last person, they get saved. That could be the beginning of the rapture. But... There's also another significant event that Paul speaks of in 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Now, in context, he's speaking of the Antichrist. If you look back to verse 3, I won't read that, but look at verse 6. It says, and now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. Okay, who's, who's going to be revealed? The Antichrist. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And when then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Who's the restrainer? The Holy Spirit. Okay, um, This will likely happen synonymously with the rapture. When the bride, Jesus, comes back for his bride, uh, the Holy Spirit will depart in a sense. That doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit won't be at work in the world. The Holy Spirit will still be at work in the world. Uh, it'll just be different than what we're used to. It's really hard to describe because we don't understand how it's really going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to depart in a sense, but there's still going to be people that get saved during the tribulation. There'll be 144,000 anointed Jews to preach the gospel, empowered by the Spirit to preach the gospel. You see the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. They're preaching the gospel. We see people are getting saved. They can only be saved by a work of the spirit so the spirit will be there it'll just be different but what the point is is the holy spirit is restraining the antichrist from coming on the scene as soon as he goes the antichrist is coming and that's what leads us to revelation chapter 6 in revelation chapter 6 there's so much stuff i want to talk about i'm just like biting my tongue Revelation chapter 6. Now, just before this, we see uh, John in Revelation chapter 5. He's weeping uh, because there's this scroll and nobody's worthy to open the scroll. This scroll, because it's written on both sides, is believed to be the title deed to the earth. Because in that culture, in that time period, there was one kind of document that was written on both sides. And it was specifically something like this. Imagine you got your house foreclosed on, okay? Uh, the bank took your house back because you weren't able to make the payments. So they said, okay we're going to write on here what it's going to take the debt you have to pay to get your house back now this is basically that scenario with the with the scroll it's believed to be as i mentioned the title deed to the earth no one's able to open the scroll why no one can pay the price to redeem the earth okay and then who opens it jesus the lamb of god why he was the only one that could pay the price to get it to, to get the earth back from the bank, if you will, okay? To, to get the house back from foreclosure. So he opens the scroll as he opens these seals. Beginning with the first one, we see wrath poured out on the earth. We see the very first thing that happens is this. Revelation chapter 6. Now when I saw the lamb, verse 1, open... Now when I saw the lamb, op, 
Open one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold, a white horse who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. Who's the dude on the white horse? It's the Antichrist, okay? We're going to see Jesus in Revelation chapter 19 come on a white horse, but what will he be holding? Not a bow, but a sword. Now, when we look at the Antichrist, it's easy to look at him. He's just the complete enemy of God. He's the opposite of God. But anti, it means something different. He's an impersonator. He pretends to be like Christ, the Antichrist does, but he isn't Christ. The devil doesn't come at you with the red horns, with the, with the horns and the, and the red skin and the tail and the fire. No, he doesn't come at you like that. The Bible says he disguises himself as an angel of light. He doesn't want you to know who he is. He wants you to think he's something different than he is. The Antichrist, many people are going to believe that he's the Messiah. They're going to, oh my gosh, he's back. He fixed all the world's problems. We're good. Yay. But he's carrying a bow. He's not carrying a sword. He's an imposter. Now, this is what marks the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. The Antichrist... Uh, not just coming on the scene, but specifically signing a peace treaty, which we'll talk about next week. It's in Daniel chapters 9, uh, verses 24 to 27. So he signs this peace treaty in the Middle East. He solves the peace in the Middle East. Like there's so much stuff going on. He's going to figure it out. He's going to have the solution to the problem. And this will start the beginning of the tribulation. Now the Antichrist, he's going to set up a one-world economy, a one-world government, and a one-world religion. People are going to be like, "Oh, you don't, you don't have a, uh, you don't have financial issues anymore." Like, dude, the Antichrist—they won't know that he's the Antichrist right away. Man, this guy has solved everything. There's unity across the world. There's peace with everyone. We all have the same system. We're all practicing the same religion. Man, unity across the board. But it's false. It's going to look good. But it's going to go down south really quick. Now, the Antichrist, John, speaks a lot about him. In 1 John specifically, uh, we see there are many little a Antichrists, but there's one big a Antichrist that would come. There are a lot of types of Antichrist with Nero and Antiochus Epiphanes and Hitler, you could even say, uh, Mussolini, all these different people that persecuted um, uh, believers and in, in Jews specifically, uh, but there's one big a antichrist, and that's the one that we see here in Revelation chapter 6. Now, in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, we see this beast, the antichrist, come out of the sea. What does that tell us? What is the sea a picture of throughout the Bible? It's a picture of the Gentile nations, okay? So, the antichrist is believed to come from a Gentile nation, but we get a little more. When you look at Daniel chapter 2, and really you've got to study Revelation with Daniel side by side, because there's a lot of connecting pieces in there. But in Daniel chapter 2, if you remember the story, uh, Daniel uh, was, was faced with a circumstance. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He wanted someone to tell him what it is and interpret it. Daniel, he prayed. The Lord gave him the dream and the interpretation. And this dream basically was this statue that had a gold head and, and silver shoulders and arms and a bronze torso and iron legs and iron and clay toes. And, Dan, and, and what happens is this rock comes and takes out this statue. But the interpretation is eerie. And when you look at history, it's even more eerie. The gold head, it represented the nation of Babylon. That was Nebuchadnezzar. That was the one that was ruling. But who took over after Babylon? The silver shoulders and arms. It represents the Medo-Persian Empire. In Daniel chapter 5, Medo-Persian Empire took over Babylon. Then what great nation came after that? What great world power? The Greeks. That's the bronze torso. Then who took over after the Greeks? The Romans, the iron legs, okay? But then we see this reference to these iron toes, uh, iron and clay toes, which is believed to be a resurrection of the old Roman Empire. Now, many suggest, and there's some indication, we don't know for sure, 
that the Antichrist will come out of the old Roman Empire. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily Rome where it is today. You got to remember, they were the world power. They had like the whole known world conquered. So it could come, he could come out of any of those nations. There's a really good chance that he will come out of one of those Europe, European nations that Rome had conquered way back then. We see this connection with the ten and the toes and the horns that we won't talk about. Uh, but there's a lot there that would, uh, would lead us to believe that he'll likely come out of the old Roman Empire once it's resurrected. Now, we also see, just about done, this false trinity that's set up. As we discussed, the Antichrist, Satan, uh, he, he's, he's an impersonator, okay? He doesn't want people to know who he really is. We'll see halfway through the tribulation, the Antichrist will reveal who he really is. But we see Satan is like the false father, okay? It's a false trinity. The false father, the Antichrist does what? False Jesus Christ, false son. And we see this false prophet, okay, that's going to pave the way for the Antichrist. It's a picture of the false Holy Spirit. Now, the Antichrist, it's not a matter of if he'll come. It's a matter of when he will come. It's a promise in Scripture. Jesus tells us these things are going to happen. And that will mark the beginning of the tribulation. Now, I forgot to mention this, but this is really important. There's a point to the tribulation. It's not God just angry at the world, okay? There's really two points to it. First and foremost, and you can look this up in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. Jeremiah 37. We see this day that's referred to that is worse than any other day. He's not just talking about a day. He's talking about a time period. This is the worst day for the Jew than any other day. It's referred to as Jacob's trouble. Jacob's name, God gave him the name Israel. It's a picture of all the nation of Israel. Jacob was long dead when this prophecy was written. But he says, this is going to be a day like no other. Like, it's going to be worse than the Babylonian exile. This is going to be worse than the Holocaust. Like, when we look at the tribulation compared to the Holocaust, people are going to wish they had the Holocaust instead of the tribulation. That's the degree of suffering that we're talking about. But it says at the end of that verse that he's doing this to save them. He's doing this to save the Jew. What do I mean? If he doesn't pour out his wrath, if he doesn't allow these hard things to happen, they won't look up. He needs to allow them to suffer to get their attention. And the Bible says that it will get their attention. In Zechariah chapter 12, it says, The look on the one whom they pierced and mourn for one as one mourns for an only son. They'll recognize Jesus as the Messiah, but it's going to take the tribulation for them to do just that. That's what it's going to take. Without the tribulation, very few Jews are getting saved. That's the main point of it. But there's also another point. God is giving the, king, the world the king they always wanted. Okay? They didn't want King Jesus, so they get the Antichrist. If you would with me, in John chapter 19, we see a picture of this. Just before the crucifixion, verse 14. Now it was the preparation day, 1914, John, of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. But they cried out away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Now, this was the chief priest, but it's a representation of all humanity that doesn't submit to the Lord of Lords, the king of kings. Say, we don't want Jesus. We don't want Jesus ruling. We don't want our creator having authority over our lives. We lives we reject him. But the misconception is, if I reject Jesus as my authority, I'm my own authority. Not true. If you would reject Jesus Christ, you're choosing the Antichrist. If you're still alive when that happens, you're ultimately choosing to have the Antichrist be the Lord of your life. And you're going to look at him and be like, man, this guy's smart. He'll probably be good looking. He's good with his words. Great communicator. This guy's got me in a better financial situation than I've ever been. I love what's going on here. And you'll be duped. You'll be tricked into a worshiping a Lord that wants to send you to hell, that wants to make sure that you don't enter eternal life. This is part of what God is doing with the tribulation. You guys don't want your creator to rule over you. We'll give you the leader that you always wanted, but you're going to have to suffer the consequences for his lordship. See, 
Jesus doesn't want to just be our homeboy, our friend. Yes, he wants to be our friend. But more than anything, he wants to be our Lord. He wants to be our master, and he's a good master. If we don't choose Jesus to be our master, then we're making a choice. Not making a choice is making a choice. We're choosing, I don't want my creator to be my master. I'll take the Antichrist. I'll take Satan because he's the God of this world. We're either a slave to Christ or we're a slave to sin, which ultimately is being a slave to Satan. It's one or the other. You're not your own Lord. No matter how you look at it and what you think, you are not your own Lord. Either you're a Lord or either uh, Jesus Christ is your master or Satan is your master. It's one or the other. There are two Lords. It's the Lord of Lords. Or it's the God of this world. Now when we speak of the second coming. And we look at all these events surrounding it. Especially as we get into the tribulation. It's nasty. It's brutal. You can look at that and be like, man, that is rough. But God, he loves his children so much. That he's going to protect them. He's going to allow them to escape from this wrath, from the tribulation that's poured out on all humanity. But listen to what I said. He's going to protect his children, not all his creation. He's not going to protect all his creation. He's only going to protect his children. And this is the lie that so many believe. Well, aren't we all God's children? It's conditional. And the Bible tells us exactly how to be a child of God. In John chapter 1, Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. This speaks of humanity across the across the board. Our creator, though he came, though he knew us, so many don't want to know him back. He came to his own and his own did not receive him, meaning he came to the Jew to save them and they didn't want anything to do with him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What does it take to be a child of God? It takes receiving him. It doesn't, have, it doesn't take just having an intellectual belief about Jesus. It, it means to receive him into our lives. It doesn't mean just coming uh, to church once a week. It, it means having a relationship with Jesus on a daily basis that I can truly call him Lord, not in, just in worship songs, but across the board in every single day life. So when we talk about the second coming, we should have excitement. We should have joy, looking for the blessed hope, that joyful, confident expectation. But when we talk about these things, and there's hesitancy in your heart, if you get a little afraid, a little terrified, well, I don't know where I'm at with my relationship with the Lord. That's a problem. If you don't have joy looking forward to the Lord's second coming, there's a clear indication that you might not be right with the Lord. It says it's something we should be eagerly awaiting, something that we can be confident about and joy-filled about. If I'm worried about what Jesus is going to say to me when he comes back, that is a big problem. And I would challenge you. We'll have the worship team come up. Finish the last song. After this final song, if you're questioning, hey, yeah, maybe I said a sinner's prayer one time when I was a kid. Uh, Maybe... uh, Maybe I've been coming to church my whole life, um, but I don't know if I can truly call Jesus my Lord. And as we talk about the second coming, there's, there's a hesitancy, like, I, I don't have joy about the Lord coming back. Like, I don't even really want Him to come back. All those feelings, now, let me preface this with, I understand when we have those thoughts of, hey, I don't know if my my family member is saved. I don't know if my friend is saved. And and I don't want him to come back until that person is saved. I get that. That's honorable. That's a good thing. But when we're worried about ourselves and our own salvation, that is not looking for the blessed hope. That is not a joy-filled, confident expectation. The Lord is not the author of confusion. If you're confused about your salvation, then I would... Do something about it. Do something about it. Don't let today pass. Don't let tomorrow come. Don't let the rapture happen and you accept the Lord during the tribulation. Because I'll tell you this. 
If you accept the Lord during the tribulation, if you wait till then, it is going to be harder than any other time to accept Jesus Christ. Literally, you won't be able to take the mark of the beast. So that means you can't buy food for your family. You can't be a part of the economic system. You'll be an outcast among the people. You could die from starvation, but more likely, you'll probably get beheaded because that's what we see happens to the people that get saved during the tribulation. It'll be extremely difficult to accept the Lord then. It'll be much easier to accept the Lord now. I don't think you realize how good we have it. This is the age of grace. This is the dispensation of grace. This time more than ever is it the easiest to come to Jesus. It's not always going to be like this. And we don't know when that time period is going to change. Now let me pray for you and pray for me. After this last song, if, if you're... If you if you got hesitancy, if there's uncertainty, if there's a lack of joy or a lack of confidence, I'd encourage you, come up here and talk to one of us. Let us pray with you. Let us talk to you about it. Uh, help you maybe understand what a relationship with the Lord actually looks like. Um, it's more than just a sinner's prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise of your coming, God. We know you came the first time. We can expect you to come the second time. And I pray if there's any hesitancy in our hearts about you coming, specifically uh, in regards to questioning our salvation, Lord, I pray uh, that we wouldn't remain silent, Lord, but we would speak up. We would understand uh, whether it's truly the fact that we're not saved or if it's just some lie of the enemy that, that we keep letting get in our head, God, because we know that he uh, is the author of self-condemnation, Lord. And uh, we, uh, we ask that you would continue to encourage us and empower us to live in light of your second coming, that we would uh, worship you with our, with our hearts and our lives all day, every day, that we would truly make you Lord. Jesus, you, you love us so much that you would allow us to escape the wrath to come. But I pray, Lord, if we're not sure if you're, we're your child, uh, that we would make sure today. We love you. In your name, amen.